If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Micah chapter 5, Matthew chapter 2. It's okay if you don't know where Micah is. <coughs> Few people do. Unless you grew up doing sword drills. Anybody grow up doing the sword drills? <coughs> you know, if you were to take away the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you would lose almost the entirety of the New Testament. Uh, but if you were to take away his birth, you lose about two or three chapters. Uh, there's just not much written about the birth of Jesus. And because of this, if you're a pastor, there's always this pressure every Advent season because, you know, you don't have much to draw from there. And uh, so there's always this desire to uh, really to be faithful and at the same time ask God to open up our eyes to what's wondrous but has now become familiar um, because we hear it so often. Uh, as we approach this Advent season, I was trying to think of what I could do maybe a little differently, and I, I thought possibly I could do a character study. I, I did my first character study a few weeks ago when I looked at the life of Barnabas, and I heard back from a lot of you saying how helpful that was, and so I thought, well, I'll do that again, and, and I began to look at Mary or Joseph or Herod, and, uh, and ultimately I decided not to do that because I kept going back to a place. I kept thinking about Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem. And so uh, I'm going to do a location study. Uh, we're actually going to look at the location of Bethlehem. Uh, I've never done a location study before. Um, so if this works, great. If this doesn't work, um, I've been here 10 years. I've got tenure and uh, <laughs> it's, it's okay. Um, we'll move on. So Micah chapter two, and we'll also read from Matthew. It's there in your worship guide as well. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock and the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And now Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You would pray with me. Father, we do pray that through your spirit, you would cause Jesus to be born to us today, that we, we would see him clearly, clearly that he would be 
alive and vibrant in our hearts and minds and spirit. Jesus, we thank you for the life that you have given us, your life. It's the reason we are gathered in this place. It's great to come here and to see friends and acquaintances. It's great to come here and sing familiar songs. But ultimately, we are here because of you, Jesus. Through your death and resurrection, you have given us new life and you have made us all here family and we give you thanks. And now, Lord, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. There is a small town in Montana that I often drive by. I like to go to Montana in the summers if I can. And I drive by this town on the way to one of my favorite trails. Um, And it's a really small, insignificant town. The name of it is Nye. And I love, as as you're going there, um, you would never even notice Nye because there's there's not a you know, stoplight, there's not a stop sign, there's not even an intersection there, there's only two or three small buildings, and as you're approaching it, you see a sign there, and it says, now entering and leaving Nye. <laughs> and I love that. If Bethlehem was here today, um, the size it was when Jesus was born, you would have that sign there now entering and leaving Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem was about as small as a town or city as you could have. It was way smaller than what we commonly think of when we think of Bethlehem. It's certainly smaller than what the artwork that we see about Christmas depicts Bethlehem in, or the movies in which we see Bethlehem. It consisted likely of about 12 families, perhaps 70 people, Um, Archaeologists would say the high end, the highest end of what Bethlehem would have had during the time Jesus was born there would have been 300 people. But it was likely a dozen families, maybe 70 people. So even when you picture Herod sending out the soldiers to go and kill all the children who are ages two and under, it's not really a mass slaughter. It would have been a few children, a few children easy to find by the soldiers. Uh, So it's small, which we'll find out later is of great significance to us. Uh, The name Bethlehem itself is significant. Uh, The word Beth, everybody say Beth. All right, we're going to do a little call and response here. Uh, The word Beth means house. All right, now say the word Lachem. This is really why I wanted to do it. All right, Lachem. There we go. It's not Lachem, it's Lachem. You have to feel like you're coughing up something. and it means bread. And so you put those things together, and Bethlehem is the house of bread. And uh, it's appropriately named. Uh, it was a very fruitful area. As a matter of fact, the original name for Bethlehem, which is Ephrathah, which is why uh, Micah says both Ephrathah and Bethlehem together, Ephrathah means fruitful. It was a fruitful place. It was the house of bread. It was Uh, a city that was surrounded by fertile lands where people would would, uh, raise sheep and also raise a lot of grain. They'd farm a lot of grain there. It was the breadbasket of Judah. And so we see just even at the start here, um, Bethlehem begins to tell us a story. 
Bethlehem as the house of bread becomes the appropriate place for the bread of life to come to us. Uh, It sits in the shadow of Jerusalem. It's about four miles outside of the city, and no one ever gave it another thought because it was so insignificant. Um, I'm sure that when the people who were from Bethlehem traveled outside of Bethlehem, they never would tell strangers that they were from Bethlehem. They'd always just say, we're from Jerusalem. Uh, Much like those who are maybe from Moody or from Hueytown here, when you travel outside of Alabama, you don't say you're from Hueytown or Moody because the next question is going to be, where's that? And you always say, well, it's, it's right outside of Birmingham. So these were people who lived in the shadow of Jerusalem. And it had always been small. Bethlehem was actually a very old city. It predates Israel. Uh, When Joshua went into Canaan and we see the conquest of Canaan there, we see all the cities of Canaan listed. And Bethlehem was so small, so insignificant, it didn't make the cut Bethlehem is not listed among all of those cities. As a matter of fact, if you go through the Bible, you'll find that Bethlehem is only mentioned five or six times in all of Scripture. But what happens as you begin to take a closer look at each one of these accounts where Bethlehem is mentioned, you begin to put together a story. You begin to see a picture, and it's really this beautiful picture of the gospel. And you begin to understand why God didn't send his son Jesus to be born in a great city. He didn't send Jesus to be born in Jerusalem or in Rome or any other prestigious city out there, but Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. And he began to see that Bethlehem was 2,000 years in the making of the perfect city from which the Messiah would be born. And so let's walk through these occasions in which we see Bethlehem mentioned in Scripture. The first time Bethlehem is ever mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35 is when Jacob and Rachel are having a baby, and I have it up here on the screen. I'll read it. We read that Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem. Uh, This story here happens almost 2,000 years before Jesus is born, and yet right at the start and the first mention of Bethlehem, we already get a hint of the gospel. It's not the gospel in full, but we certainly get a hint of it. Rachel is giving birth uh, to the last born here. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons, which would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And here, as this last son is being born, there are complications in the birth, and Rachel is dying. So she names the boy Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. Son of my sorrow. So early on in Bethlehem's history, it is associated with sorrow, associated with pain, and associated with death. And of course, we fast forward 2,000 years, and we think of Jesus, in which one of his titles was he was a man of sorrows. 
Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was one who was acquainted with grief. But Benoni would not stay Benoni. He didn't keep his name for very long. Just before Rachel dies, Jacob renames Benoni, renames him Benjamin, which means uh, son of the right hand. So we go from son of sorrow to son of the right hand. And once again, we're pointed 2,000 years later to Jesus. Jesus would not always remain the man of sorrows, but after his death, resurrection, and ascension, he would be the one who is exalted at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1 says, after making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty. So we see from the very first mention of Bethlehem, this hint of the gospel in which we move from sorrow to exaltation. Let's look at the next mention of Bethlehem, and it comes in the familiar story of Ruth. The next appearance appears in the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is one of the most beautiful books we have in the Bible. It's an incredible story of, of love, faith, grace, redemption, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story of Ruth, let me just kind of summarize it for you. Uh, it begins in Bethlehem. It begins with a man from Bethlehem taking his wife, Naomi, to go and live among the Moabites. He actually takes his wife and his two sons. And while they are there living in the country of Moab, uh, the sons get married and they marry two women. One is named Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah. Uh, and the other marries a, a woman named Ruth. Now, sometimes, sometime after the sons get married, the father, the husband dies, and then both of the, the sons die. And so we're left with Naomi, who's a widow, and now with her two daughter-in-laws, who are also widowed. Well, Naomi is going to return back home. She wants to go back to Bethlehem. And... Uh, and she tells her daughter-in-laws, you don't have to go with me. And Orpah says, I'm not. I'm going to actually remain with my family here uh, in Moab. But, but Ruth, Ruth, she famously says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And Ruth goes with Naomi and she settles back down in Bethlehem. And while she's in Bethlehem, she's working the fields. She's, she's faithfully picking up grain and she catches the eye of a man named Boaz. Boaz looks at her and he falls in love. And he becomes what we have described in the book of Ruth, a kinsman redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, which means that he's a close enough relative that uh, if he gets permission from the closest relative, which he does, he could then marry her and the children they have will actually be named after her former husband. But what we see here is when Boaz brings her into his family, it's a beautiful picture of what we see in the gospel happening later, in which we have someone who's outside the covenant family of God, somebody who is a stranger, but then through the grace and love shown from another, shown from a redeemer, this person is brought in to become part of the covenant family of God. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel 
And the entire setting for this love story is Bethlehem. Now at the end of the book of Ruth, the people from the town of Bethlehem, they gather around Boaz and they're going to bless him. And we read these words. This is the blessing that they give Boaz. They say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so the people bless Boaz and and bless Ruth here. And they basically say, may you become renowned in Bethlehem because of the child you will have. And so Ruth does have a child. She has um, Obed, who then has Jesse, who then has David. Ruth is the great grandmother of King David, which picks us up into the next time Bethlehem is actually mentioned. It's mentioned at the introduction of David and when he is anointed as king. First First Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel 16, this next mention of Bethlehem, it comes at a time when God has just rejected the king of Israel, Saul. And now he's looking for a new king. And so he tells his prophet Samuel, he says, Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to go to Bethlehem and I want you to find Jesse. And Jesse's gonna have a child that I want you to anoint as king. And so Samuel, he goes to Bethlehem of all places. God doesn't send him to Jerusalem, which would have been such a surprise, but, but God doesn't send his prophet to you know, the, the New Yorks or the LAs of this world or to the Harvards or to the Yales of this world to find a new leader or a new ruler. He sends them to this insignificant, small place that no one gives a thought, Bethlehem. So Samuel arrives in, at Jesse's house, who had to be surprised that the great prophet Samuel was, was at his door. And Samuel says, I need to see your sons. He's going to anoint one of these children as king. And so the first son that, Sam, or that is introduced to Samuel is the son Eliab. And Samuel looks at him and he's tall. He's handsome. He has this regal look to him and Samuel's getting out his oil ready to anoint him as king. And God says, stop. It's not him. It's not him. And God says these words to Samuel. He says, do not look at the outer appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, God is saying this about a person, but he might as well have been saying this about the city of Bethlehem itself. Bethlehem didn't have any stature. It wasn't regal in its appearance. It didn't have any tall buildings. It was a nothing city. And yet God chose Bethlehem. Uh, Samuel, he keeps looking at the sons that Jesse parades before him. And each time he's about ready to bring out the oil. And every time God stays his hand, finally they run out of children. 
And Samuel says, do you have any, is this it? And, and Jesse goes, yeah, that's all my sons. Uh, well, <laughs> I do have one more, uh, but <laughs> it's, it's David and he's just a shepherd. He's out in the field. Uh, you, you wouldn't want him. And I love Samuel. He goes, we will not sit down until you get him. You're like, oh gosh, all right. <laughs> so, they, so they run to go and they get David. And David was a shepherd. He was, he was out working the fields just outside of Bethlehem. Keep this in mind, he's, he's in the same fields in which we read about later, about these shepherds keeping watch over their sheep by night. That's where David is. And once again, we have heralds coming to David to announce a new king. He just doesn't know it's going to be him. He's the king. And from this point on, this shepherding motif is actually going to become an important part of what we associate with the kingship of Israel. We need a shepherd leader, not just a leader. And as I was just studying through Bethlehem here and just thinking through David's life around Bethlehem, it, it dawned on me that Psalm 23 was likely penned here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. David is there writing these things as he is in the green pastures that surround Bethlehem. So the Lord here chooses an insignificant shepherd boy from some podunk town to be Israel's greatest king. And from this point on, Bethlehem is going to be called the city of David. It's his city, the city of David. All right, let's look at the final time that we see Bethlehem in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Micah. And it's here that we get our prophecy that will be quoted later in Matthew. Here we get the prophecy about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. If you notice in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod asked his chief priest or asked the scribes, where is this ruler to be born? Without hesitation, they say, well, Micah the prophet says this, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All right, so let's look at Micah and the situation that was happening in which he prophesied this. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. They prophesied around the same time. Uh, 8th century BC, which was a really difficult time in Israel's history. Uh, for those of you who were here during the summer, and you can remember that far back, uh, we went through the great prayers of the Bible. And one of the prayers that we went through was a prayer that Hezekiah prayed. This was happening during the time of, of Micah and Isaiah. And if you remember the situation that was there, Hezekiah was surrounded by the Assyrian army. Assyria had been marching through, just conquering city after city, and they have conquered 46 cities in a row. And now they are right outside of Jerusalem, hoping Jerusalem will be number 47. And all of Jerusalem is surrounded by an army that was 250,000 men strong. And so Hezekiah, he prays to the Lord. He seeks the Lord. What am I supposed to do in this situation? And the Lord does a miracle and safely protects Jerusalem. 
But you know who was not protected? Bethlehem. Bethlehem got completely ravaged during this time. Which makes sense when you have 250,000 soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. Well, what are they going to eat? Well, they're going to go to the closest nearby town there, little Bethlehem, the, the breadbasket of Judah. And so there they, they pillaged that place. And they took the sheep and they, they took the grain. So Bethlehem at this point in history has been basically destroyed, lying in ruins. And so Micah now comes here and he looks at this little town of Bethlehem that was never much to begin with. And he thinks, Lord, is this it? I mean, I guess this was it for this little place. And he wonders and he asks a question, will Bethlehem ever recover? And the Lord tells him, yes. Yes, not only will Bethlehem recover, but a ruler is going to come forth out of Bethlehem that will shepherd this flock in the strength of the Lord. A ruler is going to come to make them dwell secure. A ruler is going to come and shall be their peace. Yes, Bethlehem will be restored. It's important for us to understand that this prophecy that Micah gives came at a time when Israel was in decline. It came at a time when everything was really falling apart. I mean, long ago was Israel's glory days when he had King David and he had King Solomon. Now 10 tribes uh, had already been conquered. The only ones that are left are Judah and Benjamin and Assyria is knocking on the door with them. The days are numbered and they know it. And there was nothing for Micah for him to physically see to give him any hope to say these words. And I think it is really important for our congregation to hear this because we are predominantly a young congregation. Um, and by that, what I mean is most of our life is ahead of us. Um, most of our life is still being put together. Um, so when your life is still being put together, you remain a somewhat hopeful people. But now that uh, I'm 45... Now that I'm 45, I actually find myself becoming less hopeful and less optimistic as I continue in life. Uh, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. When, when I would injure myself when I was younger, you know, I'd injure myself and I'd go to the doctor. Uh, the doctor would say things like, you know, uh, after we rehab that, that body part's going to be better than it was before. And you're like, Wow. I'm going to come out of this better. <laughs> you know, like, uh, then, then the next time you injure yourself, and by the way, I've had, I've had eight shoulder surgeries. Uh, and so the, uh, the next time you, you injure yourself, the doctor doesn't say, well, you know, you're going to be better than you were before because a few more years have gone by. And now it's like, you know, we're, in, we're going to do the best we can to get you back to normal. Like, well, normal, that's a, that's a downgrade uh, from better. But okay, normal's great. And maybe they even use the language, we'll get you back to 100%. A few more years go by, another injury happens, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor, he no longer says, we're going to get you back to 100%. He says, you know, we're going to do the best we can to get this as functional as possible. You, you don't like the language of that, like as functional as possible. And then it gets worse. A few more years go by, and you go to the doctor, and they're like, um, well, we're going to do the best we can to just uh, manage the pain. 
So you're no longer at functional. You're just trying to be able to sleep through the night at this point. And you notice in each doctor's visit that they have a harder time looking you in the eye. You know? But you realize as you age that the 100% recovery is gone. It's gone. You're no longer putting your life together. It's actually, it's actually falling apart a little bit. And it's only going to keep getting worse. Um, in other words, I, I see my trajectory now. Uh, and at 45, you know, you begin feeling this even when you were 40. Uh, when you're being put back together, you always had the promise or potential. When people talked about you, when people, you know, even when I was a young preacher, I always had potential. But once you hit around 40, you no longer have potential. You are what you are. That's a hard thing to deal with. Um, I've shared this before, but um, a few years ago, uh, five to be exact, uh, Lauren and I were a little melancholy. Um, it was hitting Lauren a little bit more than me, but we were both going through this little melancholy period, which is not like us. We're not melancholy. And we were trying to put a finger on it. And it was, it was hard to understand because everything was going so well in our lives. And then we realized that was, that was why we were melancholy because we had hit that peak. You know, when you're a child and you always wonder, I wonder what my life's going to look like. We were at that point. You know, that's when you imagine your family, what kind of family will I have? It's, it's always like the children are just young enough where they stay at home. You could do things together, play games at night, all this. Like we were at that point where it was so much fun. And then we started realizing this is it. It's going to start the slow, steady decline here. And so we actually began to feel a little melancholy about this. Um, it's okay. You're all going to get there as well if you aren't already there. Now, I remember I, I visited my grandmother. She, um, she died when she was 98, and she was living in a nursing home and went there. And you could look at the nurses. They were wonderful, just loving people, hard workers. Uh, yet, if you really looked at them, you noticed that they really didn't have hope in their eyes. I remember seeing this so clearly. It's because they knew the best they could do is maybe provide a bus trip once a week to a grocery store or uh, perhaps give some games at the evening or some kind of activity, maybe do a little bit of therapy. But ultimately, they could do nothing. Nothing. Listen, at some point, our trajectory goes down this way. You might not feel it yet, but someday it's going to be that way. And you know what? The only thing you're going to have to hold on to is the word of God. It'll be the only thing you have. Micah is looking out at a situation in which Israel has peaked and now is declining and has been devastated. And he sees nothing, no hope. And God says, the Messiah is going to come out of this. I'm saving the world through this place. And all he had was the word of God to hold on to. Hear me, when it comes to the end of our lives, all we have is believing that the perishable will put on the imperishable, that the mortal will put on immortality, and that death will be swallowed up in victory, the victory that was given to us through the resurrection of Jesus. That's all we have is that hope. Let's look at the final mention of Bethlehem. The 
final mention of Bethlehem is the most familiar. It's what's in the Gospels. It's at the birth of Jesus, found both in Matthew and in Luke. Once again, by the time we get to this point in the story, Bethlehem is small. You know, it's the it's the maybe dozen families or so, maybe 70 people. It's insignificant. Uh, and during this time, God causes this empire-wide census to move a small little Jewish couple from point A to point B. Um, he disrupts thousands and thousands and thousands of lives simply to move a couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Uh, I, I love pointing this out because everybody tries to figure out what the Lord's doing, what the Lord's will is for your life. And I just want to say, you have no idea, all right? You have no idea. If he would disrupt the lives of thousands of thousands of people just to move a person from point A to point B, you have no idea what he's doing in your life. But he does move Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem because Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. He's been preparing Jesus, or been preparing Bethlehem for Jesus's arrival. Now, Bethlehem, because it was so small and so insignificant, it would have been completely flooded with people coming for the census that was happening there. Uh, so Mary and Joseph, they couldn't find a place to stay. Now the innkeeper here, you know, always gets a bad rap in the Christian plays. You know, he's like the innkeeper Nazi, you know, just like, you know, get out of here, you know. But there's no innkeeper in the story. Did you notice that? There's not an innkeeper telling Mary and Joseph, no room for you, you know. Uh, that's just something we put into plays to make it a little more interesting. Uh, we don't know why there was not room for Mary and Joseph. Um, probably, you know, knowing a typical Dad, he forgot to call and make reservations, you know, or something like that. It's just, we, we only know that there was no room. So Mary and Joseph are forced to stay someplace else. Now I know from all of our Christmas cards, you know, nativity scenes and Christmas movies, we, we see Jesus being born in a stable or born in a barn. But once again, notice that's nowhere in the Christmas story. I'm just shattering childhood myths for you right now, I know. But, but there's no barn here mentioned in the Christmas story. It's likely that Mary and Joseph, they stayed in one of the back rooms that was often attached to these homes. Uh, especially the poorer homes, they would just kind of have this add-on lean-to room in the back. And at night, this room was a place where they would bring in their animals to keep them safe at night. But it was actually attached to the home. And it's likely here is where Mary and Joseph found the place to stay. And so Mary gave birth to Jesus there. Um, and all you ever have like in the gospels described is, uh, and so Mary gives birth to Jesus or Jesus is born. Um, I just want to throw that out there because I've heard like birth stories that have taken an entire day to share. Um, but uh, when Jesus is born, it's described in about one second. Uh, so Jesus is born. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes and he's laid in a manger. So that part is true. You could keep that in all your Christmas narratives. And he's, he's laid in this you know, manger, a feeding trough. And just let that sink in, that the king of the universe finds a feeding trough for a bed. He's not born in a palace to prestigious parents. 
Instead, he's born to Jewish poor couple who were nobodies in a place that was reserved for animals. And this is how our Savior comes to us. Now, Bethlehem in this day was still known as um, the fruitful place. It's where the grain came from and where the sheep came from. It was an enormous shepherding community in this day. And since it was so close to Jerusalem, uh, it didn't just provide sheep for all of Judah. Its significance was that it provided the sheep for the temple sacrifices. That's what Bethlehem was used for. And, And when you come to understand this, you begin to understand why it is that God did not allow his son to be born in an inn. He did not allow his child to be born in you know, normal room of a house. But his child needed to be born in a place that was typically used for the birth of sacrificial lambs. Jesus would be the lamb of God who would come and he would take away the sins of the world. So this is the story of Bethlehem. It's a story that moves from sorrow to exaltation. It's the story of redemptive love coming on and making a, a stranger outside of the covenant family of God and bringing them in and calling them child. It's the story of God raising up a shepherd to become the shepherd leader of Israel. And it's the story of the word of God being the only hope we have when everything else is falling apart around us. So ultimately, I would say this, the story of Bethlehem is the story about how salvation comes to us. Uh, All along, as I was studying this, uh, each one of these sections of scripture, I kept thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in which we read these words. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God did not choose Bethlehem because Bethlehem was great. He chose Bethlehem because Bethlehem was nothing. And it removed all grounds of boasting we have. He chose Bethlehem for the same reason that he chose us. God did not save us because we were great. He did not save us because of our achievements. God does not save us because of any merits that we have to offer. God saves us because he simply wants to save us. And he comes to us in our weakness, in our insignificance. He comes to us when we are powerless. What we see here is the good news of the gospel. I'm thankful that Jesus provided a way that we could not come to God, so God came to us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your son whom we will celebrate this Advent season. We thank you that how, even when we were insignificant and nobodies, you came to us. Thank you for how we see this uh, throughout scripture depicted in your little town of Bethlehem.
Lord, I thank you that in our hearts, in the dark streets of our hearts, a light shines. And that you have shined into our hearts and you have given us new life. We thank you and we love you and we celebrate this this season. In your name, Jesus. Amen.